0: Excited for my first podcast to be it's
1: honest. It's your first podcast. Oh <laughs> it is. man. Your first time. Well, I'm happy to be your first. <laughs> Let me make sure I'm recording actually real quick. All right, we're recording. You ready? Yeah. All right, let's go. <clears throat> What's up UX fam? How's your mom and them? Welcome to another episode of Beyond UX Design. I'm Jeremy. If you're new here, welcome to the show. I am super stoked to have you. And if you haven't done it already, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you are regular here and you feel like you're getting something out of the show, I would really appreciate you leaving a five-star review. That'll be amazing and help me out so much. And as always, thanks to Chris, Siraquan, and Stacy for their support. And of course, if you think the show is worth sharing, then I would love it if you told some friends. All right. So I've got a guest today I'm really excited about. Radu Vucha, he's a senior design executive. He's an educator, a mentor, and community builder with over two decades of experience in digital design, from freelancing to leading big design teams for companies such as Fitbit. Radu is passionate about building and growing design teams and communities, and his mission is to create a meaningful impact through coaching, mentoring, and creating successful digital products. So Radu, welcome to the show. I'm super stoked to have you, man. How's it going? Hey, Jeremy. How's it going? Thank you so much for having me. Of course, man. Of course. Yeah. A couple of weeks back on LinkedIn, Radu uh, reached out to me or I reached out to him. I can't remember, but we posted something. We got to talking. Radu sent me a message. He's like, I love like, you know, this idea of not talking about users in this sort of like amorphic imaginary thing, but talking about the humans that are actually using our tools. So I asked Radu to come on the show today. So I'm really stoked to have Radu. I can't remember. How did the conversation about users and personas, I can't even remember. I should have looked this up before we got
0: in. I think if I remember correctly, I messaged you about another episode you did, Stop
1: Saying User Test. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, Stop Saying User Testing. All right, 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 right. And you mentioned you've got this idea that you're trying to promote, you know, stop saying users altogether because these aren't just like random things. They're people, they're humans yeah. at the other end of this thing that we're building. So I, I love that, man. So before we get into this, like, tell us a little bit about you, man. How, how'd you end up on this podcast today?
0: <laughs> oh my God. I'm I'm so afraid to start this because I, I'm old. I've been using computers since they used cassette tapes to store information rather than uh, hard drives or anything. And there's been several technologies that came and went since then, like the CDs, right? I don't know if our audience remembers that.
1: So I have, I have a feeling we have some young, yeah. <laughs> some
0: young folks. Yeah.
1: So I kind of started uh,
0: fiddling with computers since I was a, a child. My my dad um, brought computers home, and I was always in front of them. And I sort of got into um, coding a little bit at first, and then I was right. really frustrated on how things looked, and I felt like I could improve them. So. Um, I was actually using Microsoft from Page 95 back then oh, uh, wow. to build like web pages. And one day, my dad told some friends that, "Hey, my son can build web pages." I was like, "No, no, no, no! I, I <laughs> don't, don't tell, tell people that." that. <laughs> and he told them, and you know, they came rushing in. Everybody wanted a page back then, a web page. So I started with that, and I did freelancing for about f- five years, and then I started getting into like design studios. I ended up working for Adobe for about four years. Um, I, I moved to another startup that got acquired by Fitbit, where I also worked for about four years and I built a, a pretty large design team. And for the past few years, I've had several roles. I co-founded a design studio. I'm leading design for a sort of creator economy startup in Berlin. Um, and. One of my passion projects is also I have an educational program in design, which is called Mental Design Academy. Um, And that really was born out of the fact that I really wanted to hire better people uh, when I interviewed like better designers. And
1: I was like, well, if I want something changed, I got to do it myself. So... Yeah, we're, I want to talk a little bit about Mento Design Academy at some point. Don't let me forget sure. to talk about that cuz I'd love to to promote that a little bit if I'm sure you I'm sure you'd be okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> let's talk about that in a little bit. Let me ask you this. This idea, you know, you you messaged me and and it really resonated with you this idea of stop saying user testing and and you you feel very strongly about stop saying user altogether. Tell me how did that evolve in your head? What happened? There had to have been some I imagine there's some event or some kind of uh, something happened where you said, you know what, this isn't working. We should stop yep. saying
0: user. Yep. So many meetings I was sitting and listening and usually I do a lot of listening in meetings. I I tried to stop myself from talking too much and kind of listen to people and now I was like users was thrown across the table and to the left and to the right and users and <laughs> users and I was like asking myself like who's that like you know, I have no image of what users means and these people didn't have either. So it was just a way for them to feel more connected to the people we were building things for. And I guess, you know, users, the, the word, the, the meeting, making people think about the customers was definitely a good thing maybe 20 years back when everybody was focused on technology, right? And every everything was technology and nobody really thought of the customer. They were like, oh, we need to put this into the market. We need to, to build this. So. I I was sitting there and listening, and I was like, I had no image for this. What did the user look like? And I was like, Well, how would I change this? And I, you know, I realized I had an interview a couple of days past where I talked to someone, and that someone let's call let's call her Melanie, right? So I was like, Well, why don't we call her Melanie, or why right. don't we call, we call them creators, or why don't we call them like teachers, educators? Whoever we're building this for, why don't we call them by their name? Because this is what they are. So I, you know, like I messaged you, I felt like users was this, you know, non-existing being with no dreams, no problems, no kids, no family, no, absolutely nothing. It's just a a cover word we use to (laughs) kind of feel a little bit of we're building this for someone, but we don't, we can't articulate for, for whom we're building
1: it. Well, it's funny, I, you know, I, I don't know if you've, uh, you're have you familiar with this quote by Edward Tuft. And I, it was funny because doing a little bit of prep for this interview, I actually researched it. it. It turns out he didn't actually say this. This this quote that's attributed to Edward Tuft is, is not actually the quote he said. But anyways, you know, even if he didn't say it, I don't think it matters. But only drug dealers and software companies call their customers users. <laughs> and it's funny because it's, it's ex- com- sort of exactly like what you're saying, right? Like a drug dealer doesn't care who the person is that buys their crap. They just want you to buy it and keep buying it and don't stop buying it. And I I feel like that's often the same kind of thing with our users, you know, Facebook, social media companies, they don't care who you are. They just want more people, you know, eyeballs on their screen. So I I just, I love that idea though. And yeah, that, that when you messaged me and you said, you know, user's an an amorphous entity with no personality, hopes, or dreams. I just, I love that. One of the things that that I've been trying to promote quite a bit with when people ask me like, how do I talk about my case study? And how do I interview and, and present my work? And I always say, like, you know, use the personas. We, we create these personas. Every, almost every case study has a mention of a persona, um, especially the ones from the boot camps. They always have a persona. Uh, you know, but you never mention them again. It's just like, I made a persona. Here's Jim. And then at no point do you mention Jim ever again in the case study. And I love that, you know, where you're like, well, they, have, they have hopes, they have dreams, they have kids, they have families, they have all these other things going on. User just ignores all of that. Yeah, that, that, is, that is really true. In your mind, you start to say, all right, user's not what we need to say. What do you, what do you use instead? How, how do you refer to this person that would be using the tool if we don't call them users? Do you have another backup plan? What do, you, what do you use? Absolutely. So first, I think it's important, first off, to realize
0: you just said users and what I do, even if I say it out loud or catch myself before saying it, if I catch myself before saying it, I just like stop myself in my thought, rephrase mm-hmm. it, and then start saying And if I said it out loud, I'm also going to say it out loud. Hey, I said users, I didn't mean that. Here's what I meant. And then what I say is, okay, so for example, if I was working at Fitbit, I would have said people who are trying to get out of the couch, uh, athletes, casual gym goers, or, you know, to to something, the sorts of that. If we're talking about like the creator economy and the startup I've been helping lead the design efforts, I would say creators, um, content consumers, right? So I would replace it with exactly the description oh, of the yeah. audience. And, you know, it's definitely not the whole picture of who these people are. It's, it's still a bit vague, right? Creators is a bit vague. It's not Melanie. It's not Jim. It's not. It's creators. But I feel it, it's one step from this even more vague term Which is users, which right now, if you tell me users, I don't even imagine humans that's weird like I, I don't imagine humans. I imagine sort, some sort of robots or or something, so it's like it's been passed around so much that I don't even feel like when when you say users it doesn't like a
1: human does not appear in my in my head as an image well you know the first thing that comes to mind when I, when I hear you say stop saying users is Don Norman has recently started – maybe it's not recently, but for a while now at least – started saying instead of user-centered design, which he's known for, obviously, is human-centered design. And thinking about humans. And, you know, it's not just thinking about that one user, but it's how does this whole ecosystem affect humankind and human race? And I just – I don't know. There's so many parallels there, which I I find kind of fascinating. But, you know, that idea of human-centered versus user-centered and and thinking about beyond just that user You know, it's a little different in here because when you think about human centered, it's like the opposite of personal. It's like instead of users, it's it's even going beyond that to the entire human race. And when you're you know, you're talking more about like more specific and personal. The other thing that I was thinking about, uh, I was just on Jared Spool's uh, metrics intensive a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things he says is, you know, start thinking about a very specific user. And in his example he used the whole week, it was Edna from uh, The Incredibles, right? The woman, I don't know if anyone out there is not familiar. Edna's the, the, the character who creates the costumes or the uniforms or whatever for The Incredibles. She's the one who kind of, you know, invents all the new technology and stuff. And in, in the intensive the whole week, it was, you know, how do we make Edna's life better? How do we actually improve Edna's life? And, you know, this idea of like, do we use a persona or do we use a real person? You know, it's kind of interesting. Jared, his argument was like, identify an actual person gym on the shop floor or Beth in accounting or whatever it is. And how can you improve Beth's life? How can you improve Edna's life? You know, which I thought was really fascinating kind of way to think about this. And it sort of ties, I didn't think about it until just now, actually, but it kind of ties a lot into what you're saying, you know, stop thinking about user, but think about the person. Absolutely. I, I think if you can solve
0: the problem for one representative person, even if you don't, uh, create a persona and you just, you know, you think about Ed on, on the floor, uh, I think you can you can definitely make a product that's better than thinking about users or thinking generally about personas.
1: So next question then is, it, it sort of begs the question, if we stop saying user, what about user experience? What do we call ourselves? <laughs> you know, what do we say about our profession? If we stop saying user, what, what is the alternative? Do you have, Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, well, first off, I, I'm a little bit afraid that I'm
0: going to be part of the group that keeps coming with job names. And, you know, we have like...
1: Oh, yeah, okay. I don't, I don't want to open that can of worms. Watch out. <laughs> exactly.
0: So, you know, we, we can still are, call ourselves UX professionals. I guess, you know, if we just decide to change the term now, it's going to take us the next decade to, <laughs> to, to evangelize it and, and get people yeah. to understand what human experienced designers are. It's, like, yeah, right. you know, HX, it's yeah. <laughs> like, I know I need a UX designer, but do I need a human uh, <laughs> designer, human experience designer? But I think we can think of whether the context that we're in calls for us to refer to what we're doing. I mean, again, user experience designer is the job, but I think we're definitely designing for humans. And I'm actually an architecture dropout, so I learned to design oh, really? for wow. humans. First off, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So in architecture, you you just study the human and behaviors, and you know even thinking of a kitchen, the flows in the kitchen, how you go between the stove to the fridge to the countertop. You know how you prepare food and and all of that. So I am a, a you know kind of a human experience designer. But one thing I've been thinking in terms of user experience is. People say, I'm a user experience designer, or I design experiences for users. And what is bugging me is you cannot design the experience. You can design something that you hope will influence the experience Mm -hmm. by creating various things, but you cannot control 100% the user experience. And I have this example where... You know, if you're trying to design the experience of a spooky house, house of horrors, right, and you want to create a scary experience, right, if that user is not moved by gore or by ghosts or they don't believe in that, they're not going to be scared. They're not going to be scared. They're not going to have a scary experience. So I think, you know, maybe we can call ourselves user experience influencers or <laughs> something to that, to that point. That's so funny.
1: Yeah, I love that example uh, Where of what's scary to you. You know, what's scary to me might be completely, you know, I might I might be scared of blood and guts, but you might be scared of your mother-in-law. So I love that. That's, you know, the thing that I'm reminded of right now is uh, Calendly. It's funny because not long ago on LinkedIn, somebody posted something about, what's the deal? Why does people get so upset with Calendly? And, you know, I I, I can't help but imagine the designers on that team, the problems that they run into that are beyond their control, completely beyond their control. Because when I use Calendly and you use Calendly and we are trying to organize a meeting and I am using it in an improper way, right, or I'm even being rude in my email, you know, it's, it's be completely beyond the control of the UX designer how I use their tool. And if I use their tool and I piss somebody off and that person has a bad experience with Calendly, how does a UX designer Manage that, you know, beyond just that, I mean, you know, back-end services, front-end services not working, APIs being down, you know, the internet speed of everything. You're right, like, we cannot control the user experience. It's very presumptuous of us to say that, to be honest. It's kind of funny. We have this grandiose, like, well, we're we're controlling you. Yeah, bullshit. Everybody on the team controls the user experience, all the way from, like, the designer to the engineer to the product team, the QA team to the, the other third-party services that we integrate with. So you know, I love that. Uh, it's just such a great, uh, great analogy, though, of, of uh, the haunted house. We call them haunted houses here in the states. Haunted houses. That's right. That <laughs> yeah. was the term I was looking for. So anyway, um, I, I love that example. That's a really fantastic example. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use that if you don't mind. I'll give yeah, you sure. Feel free it, I mean. to,
0: to, to use My it. My buddy,
1: Roddy, He's he, this is his idea. So cool. I love that. When we do this, right? When we stop saying user, what is the benefit from your perspective? How does this create better products? Well, fr- first off, I think.
0: It really achieves the effect that saying users had 10, 20 years ago, right? Because right now I feel like this does not, does not have any effects anymore, right? We say users and I think it's an excuse to say technology. Like a lot of times in the conversations that I'm in, it's an excuse to push for a feature that the product manager is passionate of or the CEO or the VP and what they say is, our users need that. Right? So it's a, it almost becomes an excuse and uh, a cover for pushing again for technology where there's, there may be no need for it. Right? So I think the first benefit of it is it really centers us back and does what saying user, when nobody was thinking of the user and the customer, did 10 to 20 years ago, because it's going to be very hard to say, let's build this feature because content creators need it. And it becomes, you know, like users is very broad. You know, users could want anything. They could want this feature or that technology or they could they could want anything. You know, users want to pay $20 a month. Users want everything because there's no personality. But if you say, you know, content creators want 4K streaming or want GPS tracking, you go, like, GPS tracking? Really, they want that? That's kind of weird. You know, are you sure? So users user may have wanted that or needed that or, you know, made sense for them, but it doesn't make sense for content creators. So I think the first benefit is it kind of gets us back where users were, was getting us uh, years ago when people only cared or focused more on technology, which was to center us back to who we're building this
1: for. One of the things you just mentioned that kind of got my brain thinking about this is it could help to limit scope, right? So in your example, you know, we need to add GPS or we need to add some random feature, whatever that feature is. And you ask yourself, does that make sense for this particular user set, this type of user? Okay, I just did it again. <laughs> it's hard, um, man. I know. <laughs> for, the, uh, for the content creators, does that make sense? You know, And you can ask yourself, like, what's the goal of the product? What's the end outcome we're looking for? And does that feature meet the outcome of that specific person? You know, going back to Jared Spool's UX metrics, that's what a lot of it was outcome based, right? And so in that case, it lets you really think about the outcome, not for a quote unquote user, but for a actual person who is using the tool. So it might help to limit scope. I think that's like a really, uh, really great example. It like kind of limit your, I don't know, tunnel vision is normally seen as a negative, but it helps you kind of narrow your focus, I guess is a better way to say it. <laughs> um, narrows your focus on on the things that you're trying to build and do, you know, what, what outcome are you trying to achieve. Does adding GPS to this really affect any outcome in a positive way?
0: Absolutely. And I think based on the term that you're going to use, it might also hint at what the outcome of the audience that you're building for is uh, you know is looking for so if you say people's shopping in store right so you know when you say that almost the i guess the outcome of getting the right products becomes a little bit more obvious than saying you know users that are in our stores want this or that right, right? so i think it can also help focus that conversation because it kind of hints at what they're doing what what are they using the products for what are the you know, jobs to be done for them? And I, th- I think that can also help. Here's something else that I remembered and I, I tell my students, and this is about communicating with um, intention. So I tell them, if you can say the same thing about any product, you know, so you, you just replace the, the name of the product and it still is valid, right? So if you can say, users want this, users want that, and you can say that for almost any product, then it's not intentional enough, it's not, it's not purposeful enough, right? You know, if you message someone and say, hey, I'm uh, a designer passionate about human-centered design, I would like to h- hear more about your company, you can, you can replace the name of the person in the company and make it valid for any company. So that's not purposeful, right? So I would say also user kind of lacks purpose when, when you're using it. Cause it's users are both, uh, you know, for like uh, how you said, um, or Edward drug dealers and software companies. Uh, you have users uh, when you're going grocery shopping, you have users when using Uber uh, or any other app. So uh, I think it's too generic to even mean anything.
1: I love that idea though, of communicating with intention. And, and, and like you said, you, user has no, there's no, there's no intent there. There's no specificity to that specific tool or feature. And therefore, it's just another word, another random word, replace user with, you know, football or dog or whatever. It's just kind of meaningless. All right. so curious? uh, Personas, when we think about personas, and obviously like the idea of a persona is meant to humanize that user in a way, right? So when you think about personas, how do you feel about the use of personas, do you feel like they're too generic even sometimes, or do you feel like they should be more specific, or maybe it's how we use the persona? I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on personas? Do you, have, you probably have a lot of thoughts. Go ahead, list them all out. <laughs> We're listening. Oh my God, I, I have so many thoughts about personas. So first off, I think that just
0: creating personas is obviously not enough. Uh, there's a lot of unseen work of making them visible, um, evangelizing them around the company, uh, facilitating your teams to... Refer to them, you know, posting them in the meeting rooms or sending deliverables or like files over that depict them. So getting everyone to use them is uh, something that many boot camps, many educational programs, many courses don't even cover. It's like you do it and that's, that's enough and, which, and you never speak of it. So I think used right, I think they can help. But I think one step further is, as you mentioned, you know, if we can identify one person that really represents a group and it's a real person and we can actually talk to them, because with these personas, you cannot talk to them. They're like static deliverables. Right, they're imaginary, yeah. They're imaginary. So I even think because of that, again, I, I think these are some tools that were developed to get us to be more human-centered maybe a decade or two ago but I don't think they work anymore because they've been so overused and used in the wrong way that people don't really trust them anymore and they don't see them as real things. So, you know, if I talk with someone about personas, they go like, oh yeah, personas, whatever, right? So I think I would rather identify a person and and make them visible to the company and share the interviews and see that it's an, an actual person, right? So I think personas help, but one step Further is you can actually identify a person, and the times when personas did not work, I think, is when people overuse them in the wrong
1: way. The question, all right, you mentioned something about them being static, right? Like you, you design them, you create them, they're there, and that's a point in time. Six months later, a year later, things may have changed. So I'm curious, on your team or in when you talk to students and stuff, how do you promote the use of personas? Or how, maybe a better question is, how do you promote building a persona so that it can become more dynamic? So first off, I,
0: I think it, it comes down to how you decide to build a persona. And oftentimes it's built mostly on stakeholder feedback. So it's like a proto-persona. So it's like, oh, we know who our customer is. Let me tell you. And then you, get, yep. you build it, and then I have a pet peeve <laughs> yeah. with, like, progress bars or stars for personas. They're, like, 55% yeah. introvert or, you know, 20% sure. you, you know passionate that, right? about technology. <laughs> and I'm like, how do you even use that? Like, who talks about you yeah, like what's that? what's the point? Yeah. And then another thing that I, like, another pet peeve is, like, um, using sort of, like, these marketing sort of language. So it's, like, Steve the buyer, uh, yeah, marry yeah, right. the <laughs> researcher, right? So it's like nobody calls you like that. <laughs> I don't know if people call you in any way, but they don't call me Radu the uh, researcher in, in any friends or professional circles, uh, no matter how much passionate I am about research. So the first step comes into like, how, what what's the input for these personas? And if it's humans, and if you have a practice of constantly talking to humans, and if you understand these are living documents, then you can always update them and you can always add more new ones as you research, as you get to know your customers or human who, uh, for whom you're designing better, you can update these. And we actually, many times we tell our students, you know, look at this more for, at, at a first step for yourself, right? It's getting you more uh, centered on who you're building this for. And then, you know, if definitely if you can do this Make it available for your team. You know, let them know who's the person you're trying to to build for. But I think it's you know it's keeping yourself accountable and centered on who you're building for. Because as designers, we're often um, at fault for the same mistake that many other you know roles in a company do, which is we lose focus for whom we're building and we just go off, you know, pixel peeping. We're like you know um, being very biased about what should we build. So we should hold ourself accountable to whom we're building for as much as holding other people, other roles outside of the design team accountable and centered on who we're building for.
1: Oh, I love that you mentioned that. What's funny is at at work uh, where, where I work, what we've done is we've created what we call a playbook. And that playbook has the personas, but they also have maps and you know, journey maps, service blueprints, there's there's all kinds of artifacts, interviews, links to interviews, all the stuff that we've done, you know, is there. And we call it a playbook because it's meant to, in theory, just like it sounds, run a play. So when when we're trying to make decisions in theory, because we don't always use it the way we should, obviously, but in theory, you should be able to open the playbook, find the people that you're building for, the user role or the whatever persona, whatever you want to call it. And Look at all the available information, set the right context so that the decision that you make is informed, well-informed, right? So what we've done, and we've used, we use WordPress, which is weird because it's, it's a multi-site thing that our company has, and it was an easy way for us to build it. Um, I've had other people, when I tell them about this, say, well, why don't you use Notion? Notion would be a great way to do this if you could build it with Notion, and we unfortunately can't. But, you know, you could take something like Notion, something that's dynamic, something that anybody can get in and change at a moment's notice, you find out something is different, change it. Right. And what we have started to think about was how do we build this so that anybody can update a persona given new information? If it's a product manager and they've had an interview with the user and a UX person wasn't there, let them update it. You know, now in theory, you shouldn't be updating it based on on one conversation. Right. But, you know, let's say they, for some reason, the UX team wasn't involved, which happens more often than we like to admit. Uh, but, you know, if that happens, then the UX team isn't involved. Somebody else can go in and change it, you know, or somebody creates a new process map. They can go in and add it to this thing. And the cool thing about how we've built it with WordPress is all the taxonomies. We've linked everything together and it's, it becomes dynamic. It becomes a living thing. So we don't have to have somebody go, oh, I got to go open up Figma and redesign that very specific card with the fancy thing, you know. And the funny thing is these things are ugly. They are so ugly. I would mm-hmm. never put it in a portfolio. But, you know, it's it doesn't matter. It's not, It doesn't need to be pretty, right? We're not selling something. The idea is, you know, it's just there. It's words on a page, and we try to style it a little bit to make mm-hmm. it look nice. But it's not some beautiful thing you would see on Dribble. Oh, you yeah. Or you'd never win a design award for this persona. So, you know, that's, I think, where people go wrong, you know?
0: Yeah, I, I think uh, as designers, we like to make things pretty. And I think with time, personas have become this design project where we we do like a cool persona card. It's like, got like a cool photo and like some cool visuals (laughs) and we forget the entire purpose for it. And something else that I I keep telling my students is, you know, they always ask like, Radu, what's the right way to build a persona? What's the right way? And I'm like, you know what? It doesn't even matter as long as the outcome is what was intended. So if the outcome is we're all aligned on a real human and we're, you know, building for them. It doesn't matter how that looks like. It could be like a Google Doc. It could be like scribbles on a page. It could be anything as long as the outcome. You know, sure, you can format it and make it pretty and whatnot. But if, you know, you focus too much on how it looks and you completely forget about the outcome, which happens a lot of times, you know, like students learn to build personas and they don't understand what's the outcome of it, which is all of us being aligned on the human we're building for.
1: Now, you mentioned something I think it's worth calling out, and I, I, I kind of referenced it when I was talking about the thing, but you know, it's not just for the UX team. That's something a lot of people don't realize, and they, they complain, oh, personas are useless. And I'm like, well, they're useless probably for the UX team at a certain point in time. Once you've got every, everybody kind of understands what the users are and who the users are. I'm doing it again. <laughs> Once you know the, that, that specific group is, is or who that specific group is and what they need, we tend not to reference them anymore. But there are a lot of people in our team that don't have that domain knowledge stuck in their head like we do. And I think very strongly that, just like you said, the whole team getting aligned around it, that is critical. And I think that is why, you know, um, a lot of teams, they find those personas to be somewhat useless. It's because they're static point in time, stuff has changed and they're no longer valid and they're not sharing them with the whole team. And they haven't made it easy to update. They haven't made it easy to share. And that's when I think personas start to get a bad rap. And I just want to highlight the fact that what you said is, you know, it's for the whole team to get aligned so that you're all on the same page as you make decisions together.
0: Absolutely. It
1: shouldn't just be like UX team making decisions. It shouldn't just be product team making decisions. It's all of us together, even with engineers. I say engineers. I'm going to go ahead mm-hmm. and say it. They need to be involved with this too. Oh, yeah. And everybody gets alignment and understands what they're doing and why it's important and what that outcome is that we're all trying to achieve. Absolutely. That is where this whole thing we're talking about today, <laughs> I think, comes back full circle because it's not about a user. You know, It's about a, a, a specific human using the tool, getting an outcome that we want. And we all have to be aligned with that outcome. Which leads me to my next question. How do we get our teams to do this? <laughs> it's easier said than done, I'm sure. But what are your thoughts? Right. Well, so I think
0: uh, not to sound cheesy, but <laughs> you need to be the the change that you want to see in the world. So first off, it kind of starts with you uh, and being disciplined and being vocal about not saying users. Uh, you, you And you can get very creative with uh, all the ways and in which you could do this, for example, in one of the teams that I'm working, uh, they wanted for us to stop saying "guys." So they installed a bot that detects when, whenever <laughs> oh, someone nice. says yeah. uh, "guys" on Slack, and then it, you guys, yeah, yeah, you guys, <laughs> and then kind of says, uh, "Do you mean team or folks or friends <laughs> or colleagues?" Right? I love it. I love it. the The other thing is, I think you need to find sponsors. Uh, you need to find advocates and. This also, by the way, stands true for personas, so how we did it at some point in one of the teams I was working in is we you know if they're just pieces of paper on the wall or like PDFs, nobody will care. But if you have an advocate, if you have someone that represents that persona and speaks for them and about them, uh first off, it kind of gets you the feeling that you can go and ask that persona something because now it's it's being advocated uh, by someone, so then I think uh, first off, you know, definitely changing yourself, noticing when you say users and getting yourself to a point where you stop saying users. And then I think leading by that example, people will notice you stopped saying users. So they're, they're going to notice something is different, right? So If they say, well, our users need that. And I reply with, I think you're right. Our content creators need that. They're going to go like, whoa, <laughs> yeah. wait, what did you say? I love it.
1: Like,
0: you used a different word. What was that?
1: You just normalize yeah, it, right? Yeah, you, you normalize, normalize it. it, yeah. And
0: then you, you definitely, de- depending on the size of the company, if it's very large, you need to find these other people that you know also agree with you, and also have them say humans or content creators or whatnot instead of users. So I, mean, I feel like it can almost spread and and get in, but it's not going to be easy. I, I do agree that it's easier said than done. Yeah,
1: it's not easy. Yeah.
0: I would also say you need to convey why you're doing this. And I think this is definitely a topic for designers because we, a lot of times we talk about the why behind our activities. You need to, to let your team know, like what's the benefit of this? Just like we spoke today, like what's the benefit of humanizing uh, language in UX? Right? What's the benefit? How
1: will this help us? And why should they care about uh, this? I love that you mentioned that because one of the things that I think very strongly is that one-on-ones, this is a really great opportunity to evangelize this. So, and I talk about one-on-ones, I mentioned this a couple of weeks back on LinkedIn, but one-on-ones are not just for you and your manager. It is, I think, very important to have one-on-ones with product owners, stakeholders, engineers, whoever you work with on a daily basis to just, it's, a, it's another opportunity to just get alignment. This is a, a, I think, a really great opportunity to talk about this one-on-one without a big group, no other interruptions, no other people butting in, you know, just you and that other person having a conversation about this, you know, and this could be about anything really. I mean, like, it's a really great way to just get somebody on your side, regardless of what the topic is, but this is a really great thing. Uh, Another thing I keep talking about Jared Spool's metric intensive, but a lot of stuff we've talked about today ties back in there directly, which is interesting. Jared mentioned something that I thought was really, a uh, really great insight was find a uh, champion, find a champion. And this could be somebody you don't even know is aligned because they've never mentioned it in a public setting like a meeting or something. But having this one on ones, you get the opportunity to find that champion who can then go and talk about this and change the way they talk in meetings. So it's not just you. It's you and another person and eventually a second part, a third, and a fourth, and a fifth. And then eventually everybody is aligned. And when a new person comes in, they start saying user. We don't say user. We say, you know, whatever, uh, content creators or whatever. You create a culture. Yes, you create a culture. And it slowly happens over time. This is a very slow process. But I, always, I thought that was uh, just like a really great tie-in. The other thing I thought about, I don't know, uh, in Europe they have the game Taboo. You guys ever heard of that game, tab? Yeah, I think so. It's got a buzzer and you press a little thing whenever someone oh, says yeah, the word yeah. they're not supposed to. In the game, you, eh, you buzz them. Back in high school, I had a teacher, an English teacher. Whenever we did presentations, you know, a bunch of high school kids, like, um, you know, all these mm-hmm. filler words. And every time someone said like, eh, <laughs> she would buzz the in the middle of the presentation. So you could take one of those in a meeting. Anytime someone says user, eh, you just buzz them. <laughs> I think you can build it with AI now. You could do it with AI. Just get a robot that just plays in the meeting and, eh, you know, we were like, a, sirens go off or something. Uh, But it's it's very similar. It got me thinking that that bot in your when you say guys. Anyway, I love that. That's really great. So the one on ones, the culture, you know, change over time. It really is something that I think needs to have. It's not just us, obviously. It's something the whole team needs to get aligned with, in order for us to get there.
0: Absolutely. So I love
1: that. And I think we just
0: helped everyone because right now you can just, if you're listening, you can just share this uh, podcast with your team, and they're going to understand why they shouldn't say users. That's
1: right. Exactly. Let me, let me just save you some time, share the episode, yes. share it in your work Slack channel, yeah. tell all your buddies, and we'll send you a Beyond UX Design sticker yes. if you want to do that. Just let me know. <laughs> all right, cool. So, so questions. Um, any, any, other, any other places that you might want to go to find out more about this? Do you have any other further reading? Any other people that you know that are talking about this that somebody can go out and find some of the stuff they've had to say about it?
0: To be honest, I, you know, I resonated so much with you and I wrote to you because I haven't seen this, uh, elsewhere. Like I haven't seen people talking about this elsewhere. I don't know if you prepared any resources or, uh, you, you have anything to share, but to be honest, uh, this is again, I, I repeat myself, something I tell often to my students is, um, we are kind of at the forefront of it. This is not, you know, like chemistry or physics where most of it has been settled down for like 100, 200 years. And then, you know, we're just like doing incremental changes, but, you know, it's it's mostly known. Like, I think we are working and learning and working and learning and we discover new ways to improve our craft. And I think, you know, I don't want to get a hell on myself, but this might be kind of, we might be kind of first people, you know, maybe there's other people that I haven't heard or looked at, but I think there's, a small set of people that are thinking hey we should stop saying users and call them by their names or like by their craft or goal and i don't know if there's any books yet that have appeared on on this theme but what i think is you can definitely get a lot of value from like podcasts like this because this is where we we get to be a little more courageous you know a book takes mm-hmm maybe a year to write and you need to <laughs> yeah. edit it and you need to. A year? Yeah. Uh, It'd take me like a decade. <laughs> exactly. Right. Or something <laughs> la- along those lines. I haven't written a book, so I don't know, but I, mean, I think yeah, yeah. we on podcasts and YouTube videos and like groups, we can be a little more courageous and kind of think a little bit forward. And maybe the, the things that we're sharing here, will make it into books in maybe a year or two, uh, or two, but that's kind of my thinking where, you know, follow people that you, uh that, are the forefront of the industry and leaders and in thought, not just leaders on like a job description on LinkedIn. And uh, I think that's kind of where you can start learning more about this.
1: So I got to give credit to a guy on LinkedIn that I, I randomly came across, Drew Harema. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right. But um, I have been saying the whole stop user testing, or you say stop saying user test for a long time. And it's just because just it, to me, it's very clear driver test, vision test. Stress test, whatever test, user test. Well, I'm testing the user, obviously. And, you know, we're not, right? We're testing the thing and the user is helping us test that thing. We're not testing the user. And so I saw Drew post this exact thing. I was like, yes, thank you. Someone else is saying it. And he got he inspired me to actually write an article about it with a buddy of mine, uh, Casey Randall. And then that ended up turning into the podcast episode. So anyway, I got to give those guys a shout out because uh, I wouldn't have that episode without without that random chain of events. But yeah, you're right. I haven't seen a whole lot of people talking about it. And I don't I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen a book or or, or a blog or I don't know. Not to say they're not out there. I just haven't seen them. But all right. Well, if we find something, we come across it, find us on LinkedIn and we'll let you know. (laughs) All right, cool, man. Well, um, before we get out of here, I wanted to ask you a few questions just to help all those Beyond UX design listeners get to know our guests a little bit better. I got a a few little random questions. You got a few more minutes? You gotta you gotta hop? No, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Cool. All right, let's do it. First up, what is your favorite non-design book? All right. So this, I think, has to be How
0: to Win Friends and Influence People by mm, Dale Carnegie. Yeah. I think when I read yeah. that book, I finished it. And then I started right over again reading it because I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, there's yeah. like so many things here that I need to to learn. And a lot of our craft, I think, as designers what happens is we tend to focus a lot of on our craft so like how good are we with figma with like interviewing with like prototypes design exercises all of that and we, we don't see or forget that success in our career will depend probably like 40 percent of on, on our hard skills and roughly 50 to 60 percent on our human skills people call it uh, you know maybe another yes. place where no, to absolutely. replace uh, something with human, from soft skills to human skills, yeah, I love that. And I love know, that. being promoted, um, you know, uh, selling your design decisions and interacting with other roles in the company—that all comes down to how you interact with other humans and how you communicate and negotiate. So I think this this book is actually amazing. And if you're like a leader or like you're running a design studio or you're a freelancer selling stuff and you're dealing with customers or stakeholders all of the time, this will be invaluable.
1: Absolutely, man. I couldn't agree more. I I strongly believe. And that's actually the whole point of this podcast is beyond UX design is the whole point is beyond the hard skills because those hard skills will get you the job for sure, and they will make you good at your job. But in order to be truly effective at your job, those human skills, I love how you said human skills, are what will make you the most effective UX designer you can. You actually get something pushed to production. And I often say, you can't build great software without great relationships. And Dale Carnegie's book is probably the grandfather of this idea of, you know, it's not about manipulating people. It's about getting people on board with an idea and wanting to do it with you versus trying to just like twist their arm to make them do it. Absolutely. that's a really that's a fantastic uh, that's a fantastic suggestion. I love that. All right, what is your favorite non design
0: podcast? Oh man, I'm afraid I'm going to sound too vanilla, but it's got to be Andrew Huberman. Andrew Huberman's podcast. So I think it is one of my I'm familiar. What, what is that? Andrew Huberman? Yeah, I don't know. Oh wow, I think he's a neuroscientist with. Let me see really quickly. Stanford University, and his podcast he's probably putting like a couple of hundred hours behind each episode because he's documenting everything. Wow. A lot of research. Isn't it? Yeah. And he's he's talking about, you know, how to um, be more creative, how to like, how food influences your thoughts and your behavior. And it's it's a lot about the human body and I just love it. And, you know, I I could find a connection to like, if you apply what he's saying and what he's teaching, I think, you know, you can definitely become a better designer, uh, through that. But it's, it's just an amazing, uh, source of information. Andrew Huberman, I definitely recommend it.
1: Okay. I've, I've never heard of his podcast. I just looked it up. Huberman lab yes. is, what, it is uh, what the name of the podcast is. So I, I have to check that out. I've never heard of it. Yeah. That. That's cool. I love those kinds, but the, you know, it's funny because those are not design podcasts, no. but the content there I think will help make you just a better creative in general and just help you think outside the box and all that stuff. So that's really cool. I'm gonna have to check that out. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it on my list. Yeah. All right. What is your favorite meal? And this could be a meal you cook, it could be a meal you've had, could be a meal you've, you know, where your grandma made, whatever. What's yeah. what's your favorite meal? Well, so
0: I, I actually love cooking. It's one of my pastime activities. I even went out and got a certificate as a chef, um, uh, just because really? I really oh wow. <laughs> I, I just that's enjoy cool. cooking. Uh, my friends hate me because I always post on Facebook and Instagram the the stories. And it's pretty late because I, I get off work pretty late. So I start cooking. So I post around like yeah. 10 p.m., 11 p.m. And they go like, I hate you. <laughs> I shouldn't be posting food <laughs> at this hour. Uh, oh, but, that's funny. But lately, I think I, I've, I've been loving um, d- doing Philly cheesesteak at home. Ooh! Yeah, you
1: got a, like a flat top to do it, or how do you do? How do you do? How do you do? No, uh, unfortunately, I just use really like a cast pump. iron
0: pan. Uh, oh, I would, ooh, okay. I would love yeah. to have like a a flat cooking
1: surface. Oh, yeah, one of those sixty inch ranges, man. Oh, yeah. That's awesome, dude. So I love it. I uh, actually, not a lot of people know this, but I was planning on going to culinary school. Oh, nice. Back in the day. And um, I was very close to going to culinary (laughs) school. I actually found someone from the CIA, Culinary Institute of America, to sponsor me to go there. Nice. And then I got a job in a kitchen. And I was like, you know what? You guys can have this. This job sucks. (laughs) (laughs) But I love to cook, but not for thousands of people a day. (laughs) This is another thing that people ask me all
0: the time. Like, why don't you open a restaurant? You seem very passionate about it. It's like, Yeah, because I don't want to kill my passion. Because when you do this as a job, it's so much hard work. You're chopping vegetables all day and doing a lot of hard work. So
1: when you say you got a certificate, did you go to culinary school, like a degree? Or is this just like something you did somewhere? I don't know. I've never heard of someone getting a certificate. Yeah. So basically in in romania to to be able to get
0: yourself hired in a specialized position you need to hold a certificate that's uh oh wow uh, okay. that, that's um signed by the government and you can either go to like a formal training like college or whatnot and or you can do like these very specialized courses so this was like something after oh, work okay. for like three or four months you know i would go once a week after work uh for like four or five hours and just like cook and and learn and we went we went into like a restaurant kitchen and and learned
1: that's so cool oh i would love to do that yeah it was pretty fun uh that's so funny i, I uh, yeah in the states you anybody they'll hire anybody <laughs> <You can> literally <laughs> just walk up the street they'll hire you um all right cool next question what is your favorite vacation spot I hate asking Europeans this because like, I just, I'm so jealous of all the cool places they get to go. But what is, what's your favorite vacation okay. spot?
0: I just love the mountains. I, I feel like it's so, much, so peaceful and so much nature. And uh, in the winter, I snowboard. Um, and oh, cool. I, I teach other people to snowboard as well. I love that. And uh, in the summer, I just go hiking. So all-time mountains. Don't you live in New York City now? No, I, I travel between Romania and the States. So I'm in the States a couple of uh, months a year, Bay Area, oh, okay. um, Miami, uh, and oh, oh, God. yeah, okay. That's awesome, yeah.
1: Oh, okay, for some reason, I thought LinkedIn said New York. Are you, uh, where are you right now? Are you in Romania? Right now, now, I'm in Romania, yeah, yeah. Oh, cool, okay. Any specific mountain range you like the best?
0: Uh, I, I, think, uh, I think the Alps. Like definitely, they're, and you know that, that of kind of.
1: You're like right there too. It's I'm so jealous, man. You know. <laughs> yeah, they're they're
0: pretty close, and uh, Switzerland has this train that you know you know you take it, you you get on it, and then it takes you up the mountain. So then you just get off it, uh, strap your bindings, awesome, and just uh, go go downhill. Just jump out the train. Yeah, down. exactly. It's just crazy. <laughs> That's
1: awesome, man! I love that. That's really cool. So snowboarding in the Alps. Yes. Oh, that's that's amazing. That's like that's that's a dream right there. Uh, like I said, every time I ask a European that question, I just get so jealous. Like, <laughs> we, I, you know, I, I used to, I'm originally from uh, New Orleans, which is uh, you know the very like very south, right? Mm-hmm. And there's really nothing around New Orleans. I mean, eight hours to like the next yeah. biggest city, like Atlanta or Dallas. But you have even then, you're like, like But it's so far. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you think of, like, overlay, you know, New Orleans to Colorado from, like, Europe, it's, like, you know, the other side of the continent almost, right? There's nothing (laughs) close in the
0: States. There's nothing close. I know. know. Everything
1: is so far away. You guys can just take a train. It's so nice. Just hop on a train, and you're there in a few hours or a day. I'm very jealous. All right. Uh, I'm going to just get upset if I keep talking (laughs) with this. All right. What's your favorite design tool that is not Figma? Right. So, uh Design tool. Hard. Okay, it's got to be a design <laughs>
0: tool. Wait, so this is a little bit design related, but it's not a. It's not Figma. Well, so first off, I, I gotta admit, I'm a bit of a hater on Figma. We use it in all of my teams, oh, really? but okay. I just it it kills me with the the syncing and the the cloud thing all of the time. So actually, I, I prefer Sketch. But if really okay, yeah, because it's faster. You know, it's local. It doesn't have to sync everything. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, I feel it's a lot a lot more much faster. But um sometimes i like an old-fashioned pen
1: i love it that. yeah but man i actually care i have this pen you can't see yeah. at home. <laughs> everybody listening but i have this uh nice zebra he's been taking notes i haven't yeah i've been taking notes f701 it's a beautiful it's my edc pen i'm like kind of edc geek and then i have let's see i got my like my you know field notes notebooks yeah. so i carry this around and i just write a lot of times i was like you know linkedin posts or random thoughts Anyway, I, I love I'm with you, dude. I, don't, I I could take a note on my phone, but I don't want to. Yeah. The thing that's funny, though, is like the other day I thought I lost that notebook and I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, what am I going to do? Nothing's online. So, you know, I don't know. I got to like go and take a picture of every page every once in a while. Just so in case I lose it, I'm not going to like you know, have a fit. But um, so you like sketch. That's funny. I I really like sketch, too. Um, I don't use Figma at work, actually, because of the security, because, you know, part of the, the GE aerospace. Mm-hmm. They do not want their data on anyone else's servers. No. <laughs> so everything has got to be local and it's locked down. So we have to use Sketch. We don't. Need, they don't even let us use Sketch Cloud. That's blocked. So if you try to upload something, mm-hmm. it's blocked. So we cannot use Figma. <laughs> um, but I do use Figma on my personal computer for like random projects and stuff. But um, I've noticed though, it depends. Maybe it's just my computer, but Sketch, it is local. But sometimes, it's, depending on the file it gets like really laggy, mm-hmm. but, um, I do like their component library and stuff. I like how their component stuff work better than Figma personally. Yeah, Sketch component library just makes more sense to yeah. me. I don't know. I, I don't know. Anyway, but cool. All right. So I love that you love pen and I love pen and <laughs> paper too. I'm, I'm with you on that. All right, dude. So cool. Well, that's everything I got. Um, anything else you want to give a shout out, a, a plug? I know you've got Mento Design Academy. You want to plug that? Yeah oh, well, we're yeah. On. we didn't really talk about it at all, but I want to make sure you, yeah, you no get a worries. shout out there.
0: So I I really started a mental design academy because I wanted to to see better designers in the market, right? And there's, uh, I know bootcamps kind of get like a bad rep and I've been a mentor for other programs as well. And actually I started this program because I wanted to fix a lot of that. So if you're just looking to accelerate your transition to design, this is by no means a bootcamp is, um, you know, a silver bullet. You do this and then you never learn and you know, it doesn't train you for the real job because, you know, you wouldn't be paying for us to be uh, picky CEOs or like, you know, push back on your design all day and just uh, be on your nerves. So we definitely want to teach you the basics and the foundation, and then um, the the real world is going to teach you the 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 real world of and the reality of of companies. So if anyone is looking to to accelerate their transition, you can find us at mentodesign.academy. And I guess there's going to be a link in the description of this podcast. Yeah, I'll um, we'll put a link in the show notes. And yeah, if you're exactly. not sure, you know, just book a call with us. It's free. Uh, send us an email. We're happy to guide anyone, even if we're the right choice or not. That's another thing about us. We, we try to be open and honest. And if you're not the right choice for us, or if we're not the right choice for you, we're going to convince you. Uh, that that's the case. And actually I find myself most of the time in calls with potential students telling them, you
1: know, this is not for you. Here's what you can do. <laughs>
0: oh, wow. Bad bad for the business, good for
1: the people. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's, that's great though. Uh, yeah. A lot of times, you know, like, I don't, I don't want to give a, give them a shout out, but like, you know, those, the, the, the bad boot camps, I guess <laughs> they're literally just like a money-making scheme. I think, um, somebody recently, I I've used this analogy like a thousand times, but I'll, I'll do it again. Cause it's perfect. But they compared, you know, the UX design to like the gold rush in the 1840s mm-hmm. and everybody's trying to become a UX designer and these the boot camps are the only ones, you know, making money. You know, like the the, the people selling the shovels yeah. and the pickaxes are the only ones making money back in the day. So, If
0: anyone is listening and, uh, you, you know, you're thinking of getting into design, just know it's a lot of hard work. Sometimes it's a Absolutely. lot of tedious work. It's not all fun. You know, we're not millionaires. I don't know about Jeremy. I am not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, God, no. So uh, just know it's it's a lot of hard work. So it's not a get-rich-quick scheme.
1: No way. Not at all. Cool. Uh, well, all right, y'all. I think that's it for Radu and I for today. I hope we helped to give you guys a little bit more insight. Oh, I said guys again. You heard that? <laughs> I, hope to, I hope we helped give y'all... Uh, you know, what's nice about being from the South is I can just swap out guys and y'all. So anyway, I, I should I, I try very hard not to say guys actually, but I just did it. Uh, so I hope we helped y'all to uh, learn to to think a little bit more closely when you start to say users and if it is the right term to use or not. But I'm curious, have you thought about this before? Is this has this been on anyone else's radar? Have you tried to stop doing this with your team? And if so, has it worked out? Uh, let us know what you think on LinkedIn or shoot us an email at hello at beyonduxdesign.com. I'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you heard today, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you feel like you're getting something out of the show, I would really appreciate a five-star review. Not just five stars. I'm talking about a couple sentences. <laughs> That'll help me out so much. I would really appreciate that. And if you know somebody who might find any of this stuff useful, please tell them about the show. That'd be fantastic. And if you want to help keep the show independent and ad-free, check out the patreon uh, sponsor packages at beyonduxdesign.com slash support. You can join Chris, Siraquan, and Stacy by supporting the show for as little as $3 a month. And there are some sweet perks like a badass holographic Beyond UX Design sticker. And you can get a shout out on the show every week. And there's even a package to meet with me for 30 minutes every month. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter and check out all the past episodes at beyonduxdesign.com. I hope you keep coming back for more great UX tips from Beyond UX Design. And until next time, remember you are more than a designer because there's more to UX than design. I'll see you around. Take care, y'all. We'll fix it in post and we'll make you sound beautiful. You'll sound wonderful. It's like makeup for uh, podcasts.